Good morning. Our passage today is from 2 Samuel chapter 8. And we'll be looking at the entire passage, not just the bits that was read out for us today. So it'll be good if you can keep your passage open in the Bibles or on your phones if you're using them. Let us pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, may the meditations of our hearts and the word of my mouth be found acceptable before you. Work in our heart through our spirits, through your spirits, Father. And may our hearts respond to you. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Now, as we look at our passage today, what we see is a long list of victories that David won. And some of us may even think that this passage is not really relevant to us. After all, what theological importance can a summary report of David's winning, David winning a bunch of battles have to do with our situation for today? What value then is this passage for a Sunday sermon? Now, these are good questions. And if those are the questions that you have, then I don't blame you. At the surface, this is just a summary of David's victories. But there is something to be learned here. So let's take a closer look at the passage. Now, we saw from the reading that there's a list of victories here. But what we want to pay attention first is how the narrator starts this section in verse 1. He begins with, after this, before he lists out everything. And this implies that whatever is happening here in this chapter is linked to what happened in the previous chapter, where God made a promise to David regarding his throne and God revealed his plans for the future. Now, as we study this passage carefully, we will see that these victories are actually summarizing David's victory throughout his reign as king. These are not really a step-by-step -step chronological report of what happens, and then it continues to chapter 9, right? And what's actually happening here is, after chapter 8, where he tells of God's promise to David, the author gives a quick summary before continuing the story in chapter 9. And the reason we know this is because the things that happen in chapter 8 are actually explained in more detail later on. So this chapter stands on its own and is linked to the previous chapter. So if we understand that, we will see that the author's reason for doing this is so that we will link the after this in verse 1 with God's promise to David. In other words, this chapter then is the proof of God's sincerity and trustworthiness concerning the promise he has made to David. So let's have a look at the text. We see in verse 1, David defeated and subdued the Philistines. Then he took Matak Amah, which makes it sound like David has conquered a city, right? Though if you look at the map, you won't find a city with that name. So another possibility is the word Matak Amah means bridal of the mother city, which can also mean the controlling reigns of the capital. So it can also mean that David took over and took control of the Philistine capital and the government in that sense. So it's saying he became their boss and conquered them. Now, regardless of how we want to understand this, the point is, David now has dominion over the Philistines 
they are forced to bend their knees to him and obey him as their king. Now, why is it important for the narrator to tell us this? Because the Philistines have been a thorn in the flesh of God's people. So, in David becoming the leader, we see that God has subjugated the Philistines and brought them under the kingship of David. The threat is gone. Next up, we see the people of Moab. Now, David was descended through Ruth the Moabitess, who was his great-grandmother. And David had a good relationship with Moab, right? We saw this going even to the extent where he sends his father and mother to hide with the Moabite king for safekeeping while David was fleeing from Saul. Yet suddenly here, we see David not only conquering Moab, but also killing two-thirds of their population. Now, why did David turn on them? The best answer for the question is we don't know. We don't know why he turned on them. We don't know why he took such a harsh measure and killed so many of them. And whenever we see such harsh actions, we doubt the goodness of God, don't we? But we have to see that actually, we don't know what's happening here. We don't know, is it God who asked David to do this? We can't assume that God approves of what David does here. What we do know, however, is the Moabites had been enemies of Israel. They did not submit to the Israelite king. There have also been prophecies that God will bring destruction upon them for their betrayal of the Israelites going back during the time of Balaam the prophet in the book of Numbers. So in the end, what we see is that judgment does come to them. They are brought to ruin and they are forced to submit to God's king. Though of course we can't say that what David is doing here is perfect justice. So here we do see something good for the kingdom. But we can't say with conviction how perfect, how just is this goodness that David brings. Moving on then, we see David having victory over Zobah and his king, King Hadadezer. Here we see David taking back the territory near the Euphrates and through that, expand the borders of the kingdom closer to what God has said belongs to Israel. So this victory shows us that David is the one who comes to take back territory that was previously conquered in order to make Israel complete again. Now we see here how David defeated the armies and took to himself a large number of horsemen and foot soldiers. And of note especially is how David hamstrung the chariot horses instead of bringing it all into his army. Right? Trusting in chariots is often synonymous with not trusting God in the Old Testament. So in David doing this, it, it's a good thing. However, we do see that David kept a hundred chariots for himself. Now, if you ask me why David did that, why keep a hundred when he saw that this is not good once to destroy it? I can only say I don't know. Though I wonder if we should see David keeping a small number as a good thing instead of a bad thing. Because he could have kept it all, but he didn't, because he wanted to show that his trust is in God. 
But perhaps keeping a small number is just something like adding to his collection or he just want to try out some strategies with the chariot, so we don't know, right? But this little statement of him keeping a hundred chariot does put a small sliver of doubt on the perfection of David's obedience. Of course, this does not in any way detract from the great victory, but perhaps it helps us to see, right, that as good as David is, he's not perfect. So if you're looking for a perfect king, he comes later. Next, we see that when the Syrians of Damascus heard about Zobah and they came to rescue them, David struck them down also. And having struck them down, David now put soldiers as garrison. And now Israelite presence is strengthened in Damascus and the Syrians also become the servants of David. The kingdom is being established from a position of strength and security. So as we conclude this part of the story, we see how David has won victories over the threats to the kingdom. David has expanded his territory, strengthened his military strength around the Israelite borders. And more than military assurance of their safety and peace, the people of Israel know that David won because God favored him. And friends, that's the real security that the people have. God is with them. The ark has moved into Jerusalem. We saw that two weeks ago. The king is established and God shows that he is with his people whom he had promised last week that he will establish as his people forever. So God is establishing his kingdom under his king and he will show all that he will humble the enemies of his people and make them bend their knees to the king. And so through this, God not only assures David, God not only exalts David, but he shows the people his steadfast love for them. So for the people of Israel to hear of David's great successes in earning God's favor in destroying the enemy, is to have assurance that through the faithfulness of this king, God is with us. So they are now able to hope for the kingdom of God to come. And they're starting to see that becoming visible before them. God's kingdom is coming, and here's the good news. They are in that kingdom. How great! Of course, later on, they will realize that this is not a perfect kingdom because the king is not perfect. But that's not the emphasis of the author here. So it's enough for us to know that's going to happen. But for now, we appreciate this beauty of God's fulfilled promise, the kingdom coming. And in our next section, then we see this ingathering of the wealth of all the nations into Israel. And we start off by seeing in verse 7 that when David defeated Hadadezer, David brought in much gold and bronze. And we find out later, actually, that this stockpile that David brings in is what Solomon uses to build the temple. So this is not merely just saying, oh, David became rich. It is actually showing us how God provides for the construction of his temple through David. So the wealth of the enemies are brought into God's kingdom for his purposes, even as God brings judgment on these enemies. 
And actually, if you look at Haggai, which we have looked at earlier this year, that was always part of God's plan, that he has promised that he will shake and bring in all the wealth of the nation into his kingdom. And God declares then, the gold and the silver are mine. So what we're seeing here in David's story is a shadow of what God ultimately is going to do. And he is going to do that one day in its fullest. Next up, we see King Toy. And this is interesting, right? Because unlike the other kings, this king did not take the path of enmity with this newly established king of God. Toy, the king of Hamad, sent his son David, uh, sorry, sent his son to come to David to show respect and to bless him. So he did the smart thing here, coming to David as a friend. And so through his son, he gave gifts of silver, gold, and bronze. And so we see that not all nations are opposed to God's kingdom. Some accept God's king. And so we see that there are those who are wise, who take heed of the advice given in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 tells us, right? Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish. So because Toy does this, he makes a friendship with David, he does not get destroyed like the others. So we see then, David brings in all the silver and gold and dedicates it to the Lord. So we see David here is not arrogant, not self-serving. He's a genuinely good king who's right with God. And so in response to that, as we come to the final section, verse 13 to 17, God raises up David even more. God establishes the kingdom through David. God gave victory to David wherever he went. And we even see right, this victory coming together with security and assurance because David then defeats the Edomites, put in garrisons throughout Edom, and the Edomites become his servant. So David's name became exalted and his name was established. And guess what? That's exactly what God promised David in the passage that we saw last week. So you see, the author is doing all of this to show us that God is keeping his word. He's working wondrously through David. But that is not all, because God is establishing a kingdom. And that means more than just a lack of enemies. We see in verse 15, David's reign is marked by justice and equality to all his people. Here is the king, unlike Saul, who not only brings peace and safety, but also justice and equality. Now later on in the scripture, the prophet Amos alludes to the full coming of kingdom of God by saying, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And this was to be the mark of God's kingdom being established. So as the people see all of this coming, they see, oh, everything is starting to look so good. And if you were there in David's kingdom, you're one of the Israelites, you'll be thinking, wow, praying your kingdom come, being granted lah, in front of my very eyes. So you'll be really, really happy as you see all of this. Then you come to verse 16, and we see Joab. He sat above the army, and maybe at this point you, felt a little, you feel a little uneasy, right? Because we know from earlier on that Joab was a bit ruthless and hot-headed. In fact, our concern will be proven later, uh, will be proven right later on 
when Joab rebels against Solomon and then gets his head cut off. So there is something here that gives us a little pause from assuming that the kingdom is here and is perfect, right? There still seems to be little doubts, which will later on, of course, be proven true. But of course, not all is bad, right? Because we see good names. We see names like Zadok and Ahimelech, who's the son of Abiathar. These men are from the priestly line and they're the right person for the job. Zadok is a faithful man. He'll serve David faithfully, support Solomon as king. And Abiathar is actually being rewarded here for his father's faithfulness to David. So here we see David is putting good men, right men to the task. And he's showing kindness to those who showed him loyalty. So that is good. But one more last point to think about is when the narrator says David's sons were made into priests. Now it seems like nothing, there's nothing negative here, but it's like the author is putting this in to raise questions which he doesn't answer. You see, throughout the book of First and Second Samuel, we see that the human leaders, the great ones, they fail because their sons don't live up to their father, especially when it comes to serving the Lord. Think of how Eli's sons were bad priests. Samuel's sons, not that different. So as he mentioned David's sons here, and they became priests, the question that the reader will have in his heart is, oh, how would David's sons do? And actually later on, we do see David's son performing sacrifices in the context of rebellion against David, right? But of course, this passage doesn't say anything negative about them yet, right? So in a sense, we can see that the section simply shows David is establishing his governance, he set up men in place to rule over the people of Israel. But throughout this passage, there is a subtle hint. David keeping the hundred chariots, how David killed two-thirds of the Moabites, the appointment of Joab, the sons of David becoming priests. Somehow there's a feeling that there's just something like a little bit less than perfect when it comes to David, right? But we have seen such remarkable things being done through him. And of course, this doesn't take away from the glory that the people are witnessing as God sets up his king David and David rules and David brings a blessing to Israel. So our passage ends on a high note. So now we look at what we can learn from this. We can see God is faithful to David just as he promised David teaches us that God fulfills what he has promised. God is setting up a kingdom under his chosen king, bringing in all people to come and bend their knees to the king, willing or unwillingly. God gathers in the wealth of the nation, establishes peace for his people. Then through the king, he brings about justice and equality to the people. And that is what we want, isn't it? To be in God's kingdom, to be these people who benefit from this king who brings all these good things. And so we ended this passage looking at how King David's rule looked like. And we know that this is the picture of how the story is going to unfold, right? It's going to be a great picture of God's kingdom on earth. But because we see there are some subtle hints that all is not perfect, and all of this will eventually come to a head when David's sins comes out, and then we will see how he affects this kingdom. So here, as we see this picture of God's kingdom, 
It teaches us to look forward to Jesus. Because David is not perfect, but Jesus is perfect. Scripture says he did all things right. And so we want to see that Jesus is the greater fullness of the Davidic kingship. So even as we look forward to celebrating Advent soon, this is week four before Advent, right? We can see that our passage today is actually pointing us towards the second Advent of Christ, when we will see the fullness of God's kingdom come, as pictured in this shadow that we saw today, right? So for all of the majesty and greatness we see, it's just a shadow. It's not the real thing yet. The real thing is to come. Jesus will come in that second advent. And when he does, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so this is the greater picture compared to the victory that David wins. And so if you saw David's victory, you saw the establishment of the kingdom, and you were like, wow, so nice then we should be even more hungry to be under the greatness of Jesus Christ. And the thing is, we already are. And that should change the way that we think about things. Right now, you may not see the security, the victories. You may look at all the negative things and feel discouraged. But know that Christ is King. God has made that promise, and he will grant it. The promises of Psalm 2, that God will establish his king, giving him all power and authority so that he will rule over the kings of the world with a rod, is foreshadowed here, as God gave David victory over his enemies. But even in this image, we don't see the fullness yet until we see Jesus coming down with all power and authority. Jesus, God's ultimate king, will have full and complete dominion over all his enemies. Don't think of Jesus as a peaceful hippie who just comes peace, peace, and does not bring judgment. He's the one that comes on that white horse and judges the world. And through him comes perfect peace and security. Unlike David's temporary peace and rest. So even as we look to David, even as we marvel at God's faithfulness to his people in that time, let us now see we have a greater hope in Jesus, greater promise to receive through him. So we don't need to fear or worry if our ministry does not bear fruit. We don't need to worry if the world rejects the church, if the world persecutes the church. We don't even need to worry if one day we find out that people have come and like, broken the church and demolished everything because God will bring a greater victory than, Jesus, than David ever received because Jesus is the greater and more perfect king who does everything well. So trust in that promise. You have seen the Old Testament picture written here for your encouragement and look forward to the coming of Christ. And finally then, all those who oppose Jesus will be brought low to bend their knee and confess that he is Lord. It's a picture of judgment and subjection. So we must go out to teach the people, kiss the son, lest in his anger they perish. 
So be people who go out and bring the gospel to those who need to hear it. There will be those like King Toy who will, after hearing about the king, come to him with friendship, bend their knees willingly, and thus be spared and receive the love of the king. So if there are those whom we love who reject Jesus, it is really important for us to share the gospel so that they will know the truth and so that we can save them from the wrath of the king. Jesus will come. He will bring victory and peace and joy. That is true. But he also comes bringing judgment. Let us not forget that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to remember that as Christ comes, he comes as the ruler of all things and he will subject all of earth to him. So let us then, Father, have love for those around us and go and preach the gospel in the hope that people will repent, turn away from their ways and come to Christ so that, that they too may receive this great blessing that we have in Christ. So we thank you for Jesus and we pray that you will strengthen us, Father, to do what is necessary. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.